Hey, everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have Renee back with me. You guys will remember Renee from a few months ago. We recorded, I think it was back in December. Was it, Renee? Yeah. Well, again, losing track of time. But yes, I believe so. <laughs> in COVID land, there are no dates or months or days or, or hours even. We don't even know. I, had no, I don't know what day it is. I can't tell by... The children aren't in school. <laughs> My husband's working <laughs> from home. Like, I have no idea. So Renee is, um, I met Renee on Instagram. She, well, you kind of came across the podcast, but you have a uh-huh. um, an Instagram account, a little piece of insane. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of how we got connected. And, but you're a psych nurse. So we did. Yes. Yeah, we did that back in December, kind of some psych issues. And so today we've got some really uh, interesting stories. I will go ahead and just say up front, and, and I try to remember to do this. And I'll, obviously, there's always a true crime element to this podcast. So there's mm-hmm. always going to be, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are going to be aware that there's going to be a true crime element and there's going to be some possibly disturbing kind of kind of things in it. But in uh, this one in particular, there is going to be some... Uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, and that sort of thing. And I just want to make sure people are aware of that. That way, any trigger warnings, whatever, you might want to skip this this story. Uh, you know, this maybe the whole episode. I don't know, because by the time... <laughs> skip one, to the end. <laughs> just, if, yeah, because, you know, it's pretty intense. So we'll start off, though. We do have a little... Before we get into that bad doctor story, we do have a... Um, little story to talk about. It's I feel like every week it's the new story is COVID related because there's always something to talk about. If and it, we do this once a week, so there's always something that's happened that's like I have to yeah. talk about this. There's a like 20 new news stories a day about it. Yeah. So I, could, I could only like pick the ones I want to read. Like I can't sit there and watch the news anymore. No. It's driving me nuts. Well <laughs> this one actually is pretty close to your area where you live, right? Well, it's probably about 30 minutes for me. Yeah. So Littleton, Massachusetts, and um, yeah. that's where this ha- happens happened. And it's about a whistleblower nurse who spoke out about a nursing home there in Littleton. She worked there. She had only worked there for a short time, apparently, and she noticed the conditions and spoke out about it and actually ended up dying of COVID-19. So that's what's the really, um, it's so tragic. The whole thing is tragic anyway. But the fact that this woman had the the courage to, to speak up and say something when she saw that things were not right. This is a life care center of Neshoba Valley. And uh, her name was Maria Cryer. And she just felt like that the people managing that facility didn't have any experience with infectious disease. And she did not see them, you know, that they had safe practices in place. Yeah. And it really concerned her. I think she also said something about not like they were waiting to find out if they had been exposed. They weren't being told when they had been exposed, at least per report. Yes. Which has got to be frustrating. (laughs) Right. Well, out of the 200 and 
four employees who work there at that facility at the at, at one time, 75 were out sick. Uh, 14 employees had tested positive for the coronavirus. Another 17 were out with some sort of doctor's note. And it said that they, you know, the company would try to issue a statement saying that obviously they, you know, heartfelt condolences go out to her family and that sort of thing. It's hard because I feel like no one knows really how to to deal with this. If you if you think about how often the CDC changes their guidelines yeah. Then that tells you right there that no one really knows. And we're just con- all, all the time just learning about it. But she was just voicing her concerns. And then she does end up contracting the the virus and then dies. And it's just, it's like the reality kind of sets in, you know, of how serious it is. A representative from that area, Lori Trahan, she represents the third district of Massachusetts. She said that Maria showed tremendous courage when she blew the whistle on the outbreak at that life care center and her urgent concern for her fellow nurses and the residents at the facility is a testament to her character and the values that she held, which is definitely true. She said that we owe it to Maria and all those who've passed away from COVID-19 at that facility to demand more from the leadership of life care because this facility is actually owned by the same company of the facility in Washington state that originally had all of those residents that died from from the virus. And, yeah, I remember yeah. thinking how those numbers were when, like, the first first started coming out of that facility. I was like, "Are you like mm-hmm. spreading that fast?" Like, I can't think of anything exactly like, that we currently have that goes around facilities that would go that fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Medicaid and Medicare services were talking about in, uh, issuing a six hundred thousand dollar fine to that facility in Washington state. Wow. So I don't know if it has maybe, I think that companies, hospitals all over the world are going to have to re kind of think their policies and yep. education for their employees and protocols. And just like you said, chain of command, you know, like what do you do in this situation to protect patients, residents, staff, it's just, it's not yeah. anything that I guess we've ever dealt with before. No, I've never had policy changes this often. No. <laughs> in my nursing, my, any of my jobs, but specifically my nursing career ever. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of, you know, talk about that just because for one thing, just the fact that she did have the, again, we're, and we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, when we get to the good doctor story, the importance and in the bad doctor story, the importance of speaking up you know, when, when we see something and how courageous people are who, who do that. I'll say the mm-hmm. lucky thing about Massachusetts, we got a lot of travel nurses came uh-huh. in. Yeah. A lot of travel nurses came in. Most of my friends that work in hospitals say they've gotten a whole group of them from around the country. So that's the positive side. That's really good. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. So I guess we can get into our bad doctor story. This. Yeah. Like I said before, this is a very disturbing story. There's no doubt about that. And and I try to remind people that when it comes to true crime stories, that this is not about necessarily, you know, sensationalism or trying to glorify someone who's done something bad. But the thing is, if you don't talk about the things that go on, if you choose to bury your head in the sand or pretend like sweep it under the rug, pretend like it doesn't happen, like, oh, I don't want to talk about it because then it just brings 
uh, glory to that person or it, it just in some, in some way, you know, makes it worse by talking about it. I think that if you don't talk about these things that people are not aware, can maybe not be aware that they go on. And it's it's really scary when you start, I do enough of these stories that it is horrifying to know how often some of this stuff happens. And so not that it's in any way, a co- you know, commonplace, no. but it does happen. And we have to be aware to, in order to be able to protect ourselves, protect our patients, protect the people around us and be mindful, you know, of what could be going on, protect our children in this case. So this actually was sent in by a nursing student who listens to the podcast. Her name is Becca, and she's actually about to graduate from nursing school. And by the time this airs, I think she will have graduated because she sent this in about a couple of weeks ago, and she said she graduates in three weeks. And so I think she only has about maybe a week to 10 days left from from today. And so by the time this this airs in a couple of weeks, I guess she will have graduated and be probably studying for the NCLEX. I used to remember, I remember the day I graduated, but I used to remember the day I finished. How do I do? May 12th. (laughs) It's so, which that's that's (laughs) a little bit late. Yes, when you know... You've got it, it was, all done. It wasn't even a final. It was in, uh, those ATI Ugh. things. Yeah. That um, last. So I, didn't, I didn't consider self. Uh-huh. I didn't consider myself done until I had done that too. So that last semester is so full of those little straggly things that you have to do. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily super hard, but they're just, they can be nerve wracking. And like, if you're not, um, if you're kind of not a good test taker, it's it could be really hard for some people because just the test anxiety alone, you know, can cause mm-hmm. you to have a hard time with it. So Becca sent us a story about a doctor in, from the area where she lives. His name is Earl Bradley. And this doctor was a pediatrician. So he was born and raised in Philadelphia, graduated from Temple University School of Medicine in 1983, and then completed his pediatrics residency at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in 1986. So he opened uh, his own practice a few blocks away from the hospital and would continue to work there for a while until all of a sudden in 1995, he abruptly just shut down that office and moved to Delaware. And he, it, in fact, it happened so quickly that a lot of his, the parents of his patients complained that they weren't even told that their appointments had been canceled. It was just kind of like... That's when it's like, that's like a red flag to yeah. me. Huge you know, red flag. Providers want to close out and like mm-hmm. there is like a big thing. So. That's a big deal to move your yeah. practice like that. So you can usually you would like have a doctor that might take over for you or you're going to, if you're dissolving your whole practice, you'll mm-hmm. like refer your patients out and almost do a report, some version of a report, whether yeah. it's sending their records or what. Not just, yeah, like nail up the doors and skip town. It's kind of how it feels. Are the medications he prescribes for people? Oh, what okay. yeah, what yeah. a nightmare for, for people <laughs> like, needing their medicine. Yeah, exactly. Like how are they they have to go? I don't know if they had access to their medical records when he closed it, but they have to go find a new doctor and get their mm-hmm. get everything switched over before they run out. Yeah. So scary. 
So he moved to Lewis, Delaware, and he was pretty well known as a eccentric. Wait, I think I I said that Lewis, but I think he. Oh uh, no, Lewis. I would say Lewis. 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 I never know how to pronounce stuff. So I said that and then I was like, is that how you even pronounce that? So L-E-W-E-S, for those of you listening from Delaware that are being like, what? Where is that? (laughs) (laughs) It's on a peninsula that I also can't correct. Delmarva Peninsula. Oh, There you go. Wow. Some cool names in Delaware. Sometimes I just pretend like I know how to pronounce stuff and then I really, I'm just like, I just say whatever comes out. But um, he was very, he was considered very eccentric. His practice, he called babies, B-A-Y-B-E-E-S, babies, pediatrics. So I guess this area is called, well, there was B-B or I don't know how you pronounce that either, B-E-E-B-E, medical center. Yeah. PB, maybe. And I think that was maybe some sort of combination. Yeah, like play on words. Mm-hmm. The like pediatric version. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. a lot of his patients were from this like farming community, resort community uh, around that sort of was around there. And he had his medical offices very ostentatiously decorated with carnival rides and just child-friendly decorations like a giant statue of Buzz Lightyear from Toy Story. They He had a small yeah. movie theater showing Disney movies. He oh, yeah. owned several <laughs> vehicles, which were painted yellow and black with eyes and a tail to resemble a bumblebee. And oh. yeah, he, on his front porch of his house, he had a, midi- a medieval uh, like coat that. of armor, like a suit of armor. And, and some of this stuff is like, if you think about a pediatrician's office having like all this cool stuff to, uh, that could make it kind of comfortable for patients to be able to come there. They describe it like it was overboard. Yeah. Or like it was like a kid palace. Yeah. Less of a doctor's office. Like a like a, a means of attracting, you know, mm. children. But if you didn't know all of the things that he did... I guess I could see parents thinking, wow, what a cool place. Like my child actually wants to come to the doctor as opposed to being scared, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. So the first known allegations of inappropriate conduct by Dr. Bradley came in 1994. So you remember we said 1995 was when he just jumped up and left. Mm -hmm. And in Thomas Jefferson Hospital, he was investigated after a patient complained of sexual misconduct. Then there was a a second allegation in 1995, but the hospital apparently couldn't verify the claim and all of the records remained sealed. So then that's when he Mm -hmm. promptly closed everything up and moved to Lewis, Delaware. So this happened... It's harder to get pediatric records And I guess that makes sense. And I mean, it's even harder for me to get them. Like when I get young adult patients. Just in, to... just in general. And that mm-hmm. I respect people's privacy. There's yeah. no doubt about no, that. It's, it's just that. I expect it to be difficult. <laughs> it should be. It absolutely should be. And at the same time, I don't, I would don't, I don't necessarily want it to be that just because someone is accused of doing something that right. they're guilty automatically with no sort of investigation an outcome. And so... Right. Well, that's every healthcare provider's like worst nightmare. Yeah. 
Of course. You know, you spend a lot of time, not even like for certain things, you have to have a second person there, but you spend a lot of time doing like nonchalant, normal things yeah. where it's just you and them. Yeah, exactly. One-on-one, so. So in 2004, okay, so this, this started in 1994 and now we're 10 years later in 2004, his sister, Linda Barnes, had been the office manager there for him at his medical office. She contacted state medical, uh, the State Medical Association and told them that parents had complained to her about inappropriate touching by Dr. Bradley. And wow. yeah, Linda Barnes said that he actually physically and emotionally abused his own son and said that he was stealing prescription antidepressants from the office. So she sort of was just like, I'm going to just call and report this. And it seems like a lot of things maybe built up over time. And she finally was just like, I've got to say something. And she just like all of the stuff that was going on, you know, from stealing antidepressants. I I don't even know why you would have, unless they're like, yeah, like why? He's a doctor. I mean, maybe he didn't want to go to a... Maybe for his son? Yeah, or maybe because it's the same medicine. It's I watch it, too much TV. <laughs> well, that's very My possible. Mind is life. He could have been stealing the antidepressants for and giving them to his son, and maybe he didn't want an actual documented prescription because he didn't want his son to be diagnosed with depression or whatever, or didn't want him to be seen by another doctor. Well, the thing is, you don't just put like a kid on an anti. Typically, if you're going to put a kid on an antidepressant, this is speaking from experience, mm-hmm. you also go to therapy. Yeah. They don't tend to do just the drug therapy. Well, I would kids. hope so. I really would hope so. Yeah. But also maybe, you know, because uh, some of the, the antidepressants that are given to kids are not just it's not like the kid, some kid antidepressant. It's the same medicine. Yeah. It's just different medicine. dosages. So he could he could have been taking them for himself. I mean, I don't, you know, right. who knows? But for whatever reason, more allegations were made in 2005. And police records show that a nurse reported that he videotaped kids playing. And other doctors reported complaints about long and unnecessary vaginal exams. So when police in Delaware got a warrant to arrest him for inappropriately touching a patient, the attorney general's office concluded at the time that there was insufficient evidence to warrant prosecution. So this is in 2005. It couldn't matter. You know, video video stuff is always a little bit weird. Yeah, because like just the the fact that you think it exists somewhere doesn't get you a warrant for it. Well, and Not always they she reported that he videotaped kids playing, and so yeah. it's like that could be you know looked at like well if they're just playing like who knows? Yeah, it yes, like, it's very probably creepy. Could have been like oh, it's for security. Like mm-hmm. it could have been for could have literally played it off as for their safety to make sure nothing happened to them. Yeah. Well, they were, because sometimes par- like parents are there, parents are filling out paperwork, parents have like three kids in front of them. So it's almost like, oh, we were just trying to make sure they were safe. Yes. Well, and I know that there were parents, there was one parent in particular, and I believe this was the one in 1995, who said that, she reported that she was sitting in the exam room. Yeah. And that he actually put his hands in 
uh, her daughter or, or son's diaper and something like that. Or, or maybe she actually saw, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I, I tend to do this. I don't know why. Like I, yeah. I see details when I'm reading like all these different accounts, but then yeah, no, they don't make it into my notes. And then I'm like, <sighs> the detail okay, will I'm pop curious. into my head and I'm like, <laughs> what happened? Okay, I'm curious. Keep going. So I think what happened is in that particular case, I want to say she either walked in and caught him doing something that was she knew was wrong, like it was there was no doubt in her mind. And then she accused him and she ran out of the office with her child and he chased her out into the parking lot and was like, you know, that's not, it's not what you think. I was doing an exam or whatever. And she was like, no, I, I know what I saw. That was wrong. And she had reported it. And that was what was being investigated. But they uh. basically, I think the, the, it was like, you know, well, there's not, it's your word against his. It's the word of this young single mother, maybe doesn't have as much credibility um, as this, you know, this pediatrician who's well-loved in this area. And so he, it was all just kind of swept under the rug. Yeah, I'm sure they probably were able to do that by being like, oh, she just doesn't know what an exam looks like. Or Mm -hmm. like, she just, was nervous for her child or something, but he was everything he was doing was above board. But and I think that also there was maybe some speculation that she was just wanting to possibly sue him because this is the kind of thing that happens when you're dealing with people, not just not just physicians, but anyone in a position of authority and someone who, you know, has a lot of money, has a lot of clout whether it's a physician, whether it's the CEO of a company, whoever, um, they are in a position to where they know, like authorities could look at this uh, person who is accusing them and say, well, you're probably, you're, you're just wanting to sue them and get money. So, and so they can possibly be a target of someone who's just wanting to exploit, you know, this situation and wanting to get money from them. And so it makes it a lot difficult. Uh, uh, it makes it a lot harder for people to even uh, accuse someone because you're, you know, you're going to be accused of doing that. And so it's just, it just makes it harder yeah. on, on victims. Yeah. So in December of 2009, they had done a year long investigation after all of these allegations had come out. You know, his his sister making the report that she made, other doctors complaining about him. It took them a year, even though you have the original incident that happened in 1994, 1995. Now, 10 years later, you have his own sister making these statements. You have other doctors saying things. And still, it took a year before they pretty much concluded that, okay, it is time to go ahead and arrest him. And so they arrested him and charged him with nine counts, including a felony charge for um, fourth degree rape of a two-year-old patient. So that sort of got this started, but it wasn't until that happened that the medical board was even made aware of what was going on and for them to actually look into uh, suspending his license, which is crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. That's the other thing, too, is that unless, like, a formal... It's kind of like how people... Like, a, I don't know how entirely how it works, but, like, doesn't 
a formal like complaint to the board have to be received? Like they have to be notified basically if they're not notified. I guess, but why would the, I don't understand why the police would not think first thing like, hey, this allegation has been made, you know? So I wonder if the board would have any way just waited for the investigation. Yeah, I probably should have suspended his license. I mean, if you're under investigation, your license should be suspended. I don't really know how that works. And I guess it's probably different from state to state as far as, you know, how much. Innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. And whether or not they do their own investigation or they, Ah. you know. Right. So they did arrest him, the arrest warrant there, and went in and started looking to see what they could find. and. Soon after all of this happened, they had 13 hours of videotaped incidences of things that he had actually taped, 13 hours of his own videotapes that he had recorded of him doing unspeakable, unthinkable, horrible things to children aging from three months old to 13 years. So once they discovered those videotapes. They got additional warrants and he surrendered to authorities on December 18th, 2009. His bail was set at $2.9 million cash. Um, It was not posted. (laughs) Yeah. An initial preliminary hearing was delayed after prison officials put him on a suicide watch, but yeah. His attorney said that he wasn't suicidal, but they, he said that prison officials had deprived him of his prescription glasses. So I don't know. It's uh, that okay. sort of thing. I mean, <laughs> I don't, even though we are supposed to be innocent until proven guilty, I would imagine if you're in the criminal justice system, people who are working in that system, probably I'm sure word travels fast. And so you know, like, the type of evidence that's out there. And if you have heard somehow through the grapevine that there's 13 hours of actual videotape of what he did. And so in these officers, correction officers, you know, who are overseeing him in their mind, they probably are thinking, you know, I don't know where your glasses are. I have no idea. You know, like, I I just can't imagine. (laughs) Like that that's what they're Mm -hmm. thinking about. Yeah. I wonder if he had to do... Never worked in a prison, but I wonder if it was as basic as like he had to do a depression screening. Mm. Pass. Mm. Those antidepressants really work for him. They just like have them mm-hmm. in their office. It's well, crazy. what happened is when he was arrested and then put in prison, there was no documented evidence that he had been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. He was, and and yet he's taking like. I don't remember. I think it was like Cymbalta or something like that. Oh, wow. A pretty mm-hmm. significant dosage of it. And so here he is taking this ser- serotonin reuptake inhibitor and he abruptly stops. You know, you're a psych nurse. You know the kinds of things that can happen Yeah, for, if, if that happens. Well, that's true. If he was taking those himself and then he went in yeah. prison too. Yeah. Oh wow! You go to prison, and they're like, and he's like, "Oh, I take some Balta," and they look at his home med list. You know, wh- yeah, what do you no, do when you do there? Mm-hmm. Right. What do you do <laughs> when a patient comes into? Well, for us, when a patient comes to the hospital, I bet you guys do this too. Um, 
you have to do a med reconciliation. We don't yep. just take people's word. We have to look and see what has been prescribed, what's been sent to, you know, your local neighborhood oh, Walgreens yeah. or CVS. And that's, weirdly enough, that's the point I've had to drive home a lot recently mm-hmm. with the, the COVID stuff that I'm like, people are like, well, they told me they were tested. And I was like, I want to see documentation yeah. that they were tested before yeah. we do all of these things and all of these resources. Mm-hmm based off of what they say and it it feels like a to other people I think it feels like not trusting mm-hmm. like like well why don't you trust what they said and I'm just like I almost have trouble coming up with an answer because I'm like I do trust them but like to be safe I need to know if that is 100% true before I do something you can't just take someone's it, word right? there's a reason why yeah. We don't. We can't just prescribe ourselves Cymbalta. You have to have a physician that prescribes that. So, what's the difference if you know if I just say, "Oh, yeah, my doctor told me I needed it." Well, no, it has to be on a prescription. <laughs> you know, they have to, yeah. you know, either write it out on a piece of paper on a prescription pad, or they have to send it into the the pharmacist, and mm-hmm. it has to have your, you know, that doctor's, you know, what is it called, uh, the D- DEA number or something. Mm-hmm. So it's that's not unreasonable at all, and but I could definitely see this happening in the prison system because then how is he going to get diagnosed with depression? He's going to have to be evaluated, and it's going to be up to that doctor that's evaluating him as to whether or not he agrees that he needs antidepressants. And so uh, that could have very well happened in this case where he was taking antidepressants on his own, and then all of a sudden he's in, he's locked up. And it also has this huge case against him. Yeah. Which he knows yep. what's true and what's not. He so, knows. You know, if it's true, then it's, he's probably freaking out. He knows. He knows exactly what's going on. So the grand, um, in February 2010, a grand jury sitting for the D- Delaware Supreme Court indicted him on 471 charges. Um, rape. It's been a long document. Oh, my gosh. Rape, exploitation. 103 victims were identified in the indictment through the attorney general. The attorney general indicated that they expected to identify even more. And there was so many horrible, just absolutely unthinkable details that are in out there mm-hmm. in, pu- you know, for, in public record. But I just cannot even bring my, I don't even want to say any of it because it's so incredibly disturbing. I can't even, like I'm reading it right now. and It's just so horrible. His private lawyers actually that's quit. That's what you need to know. Yeah. <laughs> you, and, and I mean, if you want to see what he did, you can. I don't know what good that yeah. would do anyone. But um, his private lawyers quit after the state took steps to freeze his assets. And they so, couldn't get paid. They weren't going to get paid if you mm, didn't have assets. No, you're not getting paid. <laughs> you have no incentive whatsoever to defend this guy. So he was given a public defender and he was arraigned in March of 2010. He pleaded not guilty to all charges. And then they had a follow-up hearing. And finally, in February of 2010, his medical license was permanently suspended. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. 15 years after the first allegation. This is the first time his medical license had been suspended. And I will say, I'm always, like, I used to always get really surprised when I saw people pleaded, like, not guilty when there was, like, you know, this guy's got, like, videotaped evidence. Yeah. How do you um, even 
played my, my I always I always go to my dad. My dad was a cop. He has a criminal justice degree. And I was just like, why do people do that? And he was like, you don't, you just don't not try, is mm. what he kind of how he explains. He was like, if you have like federal charges against you, like hefty, hefty time, you you try and you appeal and you try to get down to as little as you possibly can. Mm. I guess. Oh, I guess it makes sense because they're probably always hoping that they get off on some technicality, you know, somewhere, some police yeah, officer or investigator. That's what it is. Yeah. The longer you can keep the case going, mm-hmm. the longer you have to, to find those technicalities like they come up with later. <laughs> yes, because they, well, and it's, there's Miranda laws, you know, they at some point find out that the Miranda rights were not read to them or they... Yeah, discover a warrant a wasn't people. issued correctly. So some of the parents were really, as you can imagine, just really yeah. frustrated. Um, there were parents who were not told whether or not their children were actually on the videotapes or not for a while. And they were having to wait. They didn't, they knew that their child went to him as a patient, but they were not a told, you know, they were not told officially for a while. They were having to wait. And it was so frustrating for them. Because yeah. you don't know. Your child could be one of those people. They know about the videotapes, but they don't know whether their child was a victim um, or whether their child was actually videotaped and what's happening. Yeah. I had a similar, like a much, much, much smaller scale. But uh, the high school, when I was in high school, there was a coach that was accused of videotaping the girls' locker room. Yeah. And it was the same thing. It was, we were told we may have, because I was in gym that time, like I had a gym class at the time. So I was like, we were told that we may have, but I think it came out that it, none of it was true. But um, we were like, oh, you may have been on it. And then they just kind of sat on it. And we basically had to watch the court case with Ooh, everybody else. Really? Well, because I think they told us, they were like, well, it's looking like it's not really true. And that was more of a little bit of an isolated incident. But like that's all we really got. So everyone just watched the court case to uh, make sure. Oh, I see. Yeah. I guess, <laughs> I mean, I guess I can see that. And I, and I guess I can see where the investigators are trying to keep things as close to the best as they possibly can because they don't want to do anything to potentially damage the investigation and keep him, you know, from being convicted. And I appreciate that. But at the same time, my goodness, how... Just how incredibly, yeah. you know, frustrating and difficult that would be if you were the the parent already yeah. going through all this stuff. One one of the moms said, you know, this could have been stopped years ago, and she didn't really understand why it took so long for the investigation to happen. Why did it take so long for something to be done for this to be brought to light? Because apparently, he had a reputation among his yeah. colleagues for all these years as being. They would literally call him the pediatric pedophile or something like that. I'm like, yeah. how do you get that kind of reputation? Yeah, like how those two things should never go to get like pediatrician pedophiles mm-hmm. never so be uttered in this. Like how, how they've turned does this happen no. and no one says anything or did people say something and it's just like somehow the authorities, who the people who are in a position to be able to do something Drop the ball, or did they just they never? Oh, yeah, it. I wonder how many people did speak up. How could there like, be this many people? This are, there's right. so many red flags here. How can this happen? Do you have this many uh, parents complaining, I doctors wonder, over a period a of 15 of, to 16 years? 
Yeah, because it was what, like 103 victims? Mm-hmm. Around. So I just try to think, like, you know, if it wasn't, I don't know, the best I could do is relate this to like my own affairs. So I'm thinking, like, if somebody tried to tell me that my pediatrician did something like that, I probably wouldn't believe them. Mm. So I'm wondering, like, what percentage of his practice was experiencing yes like maybe because i had nothing but a good experience but that doesn't say that doesn't mean that for like 15 percent of his patients he was doing this well and over a period of you know 10 15 years it was he picking and choosing the most vulnerable you know in opportunities where he had i don't know just maybe he, I'm sure, you know, pedophiles. People who wouldn't, predators, were less likely to speak up. Predators are, they know what they're doing. They know how to choose their victims. So they might, he might have a hundred patients that he sees. And out of that hundred, there may be only one or two people they actually targets. And then everyone else, he's completely appropriate, totally professional, really nice. And his, the parents and the children all love him. I mean, who knows? I mean, they're, I doubt there probably is a balance like that. Otherwise, I mm-hmm. can't imagine. Yeah, there nope. has to be. There has to be a balance like that. Otherwise, I can't imagine. But that, to me, that's why it's so important if there are any allegations for it to be taken very seriously. Because let's just oh. face it, it is very unusual. It is not common at all for people to falsely accuse someone of something like this because you know what you're about to put yourself and your family member through. It's not, you're, no one wants to, to go through this. To go through that, no, because you're basically reliving it. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to relive it. I think it. you relive it once, but you re- relive it repeatedly. Well, no one is going to falsely accuse. I, I just feel like that the, the, ran- the person, the, the random person who would be so evil th- that they would falsely accuse someone of something like that. I'm not saying it's not, I'm not saying it's impossible. Yeah, but it's... But that person, for them to not only not care about that other person and and, and accuse them of doing something so heinous that they know they're going to ruin their reputation, just the accusation, but also that they don't care about themselves because they would have to know how difficult of a time you're going to have trying to convince other people of it because it's going to bring scrutiny on yourself. They're going to start... You know, so... I wonder if they had a human rights officer. Hmm. That's my first thought. It's just that there's so many. And and if it was just one, that would be one thing. But there were just so many parents, so many patients, so many doctors, so many coworkers. It's just ridiculous that this went on as long as it did. And I'm sure as long the longer it went on, the more empowered, the more emboldened he obviously yeah. got. The fact and that the he was videoing it. Yeah. Better he got. Yeah, that's confident right there. Yeah. That's and eventually that confidence. Don't videotape that with the intent of anybody finding it, mm-hmm. which yeah. means you're pretty confident that nobody knows you're doing it or that nobody's going to say anything and that you're going to be okay. Otherwise, right. And I think that as time goes on and he feels like he's just invincible, he feels like nothing can happen to him. No one's ever going to believe if, if someone does make the accusation, no one's going to believe them. They will start getting sloppy because they feel like they're invincible. They and yeah. they so they. They don't think they're ever going to be, you know, investigated or it's just. So actually, Bo Biden, Joe Biden's son, was the attorney general at the time that this was all going on. And he was, Joe Biden had just become vice president. Uh, And was 
in 2000, what, 2008, I think. Yeah. And yep. so he, his seat, his United States Senate seat there became vacant. And Bo Biden, the attorney general there in Delaware, was considering seeking election for his dad's vacant seat. But because... He probably would have got Oh, I'm sure. He would have been a shoe in. I would have got it. Absolutely. But because he actually felt that it was more important to fully pursue this prosecution, it, it was just that important to him. He didn't, he just did not seek the election of that, of that and sentence. He didn't have any ties to the case. It was just that he was the attorney on it. Right? Yeah, but he was overseeing it, I guess. And he just yeah. did not want anything to go wrong, get in <sighs> the way of that investigation. He wanted to probably oversee it closely. And he probably knew that his attention was going to be. Uh, elsewhere, once you start seeking, you know, the election of yeah. a, you know a United States Senate seat like that, he wouldn't be able to focus on it. I think that's very commendable of him, you know. And he actually did. Bo Biden incidentally ended up getting cancer, and he passed away in 2015, which is really sad. So Bradley ended up waiving his right to a jury trial. He, I, I'm not surprised at all. He he knew that there was no way. He definitely couldn't get a, a, a impartial jury there in that county. But even if you go, it Can't doesn't imagine. matter. You can go anywhere in the United no. States and it's not going to matter. Well, it's just like, like we said, kids. Do you have a kid? Do you do you like kids? Mm-hmm. Were you a kid? Be yeah. <laughs> Were you ever a kid? Like, mm-hmm. well, they ask, because they do ask very basic, like, overarching questions like that. Yeah. Like, and, if it involves a cop, they're mm-hmm. like, is anybody in your family in law enforcement? There's no way you're going to weed through all these people. Think about you being a psych nurse. Know this, how common it is for people to have been sexually abused. It's something like one in five or something like that. And the the thing is, is that like when it's that young too, Mm -hmm. is they don't even like, one, it may have never even been caught or reported. Sometimes what you see is incontinence in a teenager. Mm. It's like weird things like that. And then it's it's hard to broach because it may have happened to them and they either have never processed it or they don't even know. It's just something that they're dealing with that they don't even yeah. realize that they're dealing with it. Yeah. So sometimes in assessments, I'll see like um, that they do know or I'll see like um, that the clinician evaluating them suspects that this may have happened mm. um, based on X, Y, or Z evidence. But well, it's... That is, I have been saying this for a long time. People need to be educated. The public needs to be educated on the long-term effects of sexual abuse because I don't think that people understand it if you haven't been through it. I don't even fully understand. I don't fully understand it. I'm never going to, I don't think I'll ever fully understand it. Yeah. And I work with it all the time. Yeah. So the long-term effects of sexual abuse are just so... It's something that you can't really, I I don't know that you really can understand it. I read a book a few years ago called The Wounded Heart, and it was um, by, it was written by a a psychologist who had been doing counseling for years, like decades. And he had seen so many women who had, he had counseled who had sexually abused at some point um, in their life. And he started seeing a pattern with some of the behaviors as an adult. Because the thing is, a lot of the consequences of 
emotional, physical, mental abuse of children don't come until you're an adult. When you're a child, you can deal with, you have this these coping mechanisms that are uh, just... Uh, that are insane. They're just in, built inside of you. They're there to help protect the children. And they they just don't even know they're victims. You don't know you're a victim until you're older and you look back Which and I you're almost just, thank God for. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's definitely... Too. Like, because... Yeah. Could you imagine if they were fully aware at like seven right that something could happen to them three years like and that's what that's a it's a protection you know it's a it is a coping mechanism for a reason i think it's in it's built into them to help them survive but then as a, an adult you know in your in your probably you know late teens early 20s and you start really thinking really processing what happened if you even can do that sometimes it's a lot yeah. later some people just it just stays buried cuz like you just can't even go all, there all this is like almost what's what I'm wondering when I get older is it's not even just with like abuse it's just with like everything that mm-hmm. might have like been your childhood sometimes is it even clear to you i was talking to my boyfriend about this like two nights ago about like I have a lot of anxiety surrounding something and he like connected it to something in my childhood that I never would have I never would have put that together. <laughs> right. Like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Because it's not <sighs> like when you're going through it as a child, a right. child's not gonna recognize that. I was like, that wasn't bad. And he was like, it was kind of bad. I was like, it wasn't that bad. I was like, well, it affected you. Yeah. I mean well, we, I didn't, we're I didn't all think so at the time. We're all just products of our uh, experiences, you know, whatever yeah. we've experienced, bad, good, whatever, um, indifferent. Sometimes it's just, it's just life, you know, it's going to mold yeah. us to be whatever and teach us how to cope with things. Sometimes they're healthy, sometimes they're not. <laughs> but um, I do think I that- take a lot of naps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like hope. Yeah. I think for me, I tend to, I don't like to sleep because my mind- <laughs> I can't, I can't shut my mind off. So I tend yeah. to sleep. Bedtime is a, not a good thing for me because I'm, my mind doesn't want to shut off. So I've noticed it switching as I get older. It's a little bit less napping and a little bit more um, like outdoor alone time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Being outside and by I, myself. And those are really healthy coping mechanisms, you yeah. know, especially outdoors, sunshine, you know, meditation yeah. all of those things good it's healthy. hard if you don't if you don't understand what happens to you like these kids mm-hmm. that they're not gonna know why something's happening so it's gonna be hard for them to like why they're behaving a certain way so it's hard to figure out if you don't even like, know how to deal with it yeah yeah and it makes me wonder because so these children know at the very least they their their parents know that there was a potential that something happened to them. So if you see signs, you can be like, okay, this looks like it could be because of that. At least you're aware of that, you know? So you can look out mm-hmm. for it. You can Yeah. There's no telling how many people it. who have been through something like this d- that don't even know because they were so young that they don't remember. Or maybe they have weird memories that they're not sure whether they're memories or nightmares or or whatever. Right. Or they were told what happened to them. You really can't fabricate your own memories. Yeah, it's like a weird phenomenon of the brain. It is. So you could like, if you're told something mm-hmm. enough that happened when you were younger, that like two years old, you don't really form memories. So I'm still convinced that I remember when we got our cat when I was two. <laughs> 
but I don't because I was two. Yeah. <laughs> I have this made up image of like a little cat in my dad's room because he told me that he kept it in my dad's room. Yeah. So for the first like couple days. Right. So I was like I totally remember. He was like, no, you don't. They, like, you didn't remember the next day. It can it, tell you again. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it's like you, they tell you something as a child and your brain kind of creates a little video of that. It's like, cause you picture it happening. You picture yeah. like, oh, a little, I had, a, I got a cat and you make it a certain color or maybe you even see a picture of yourself holding the cat. So now you've got right. details. Yeah, that um, helps. So, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you can definitely, without even realize it before you know it, you think you remember it, but really you're just remembering a, a, a story someone yeah. told you. Yeah, it just sort of fits in your brain. You're like, yeah, I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, it just sort of plops itself there and stays there like it was real. Yeah, our brains are are a lot less reliable than we like to give them credit for, I think. I know. So he was, um, of course, he was convicted and the judge sentenced him to 165 years in prison without parole plus 14 consecutive terms of life in prison. Um, Apparently in Delaware, anyone convicted of raping three separate persons automatically receives life without parole. It's just a bam. That's, I mean, that's... Yeah. I don't want to be overarching with this statement, but I think that's kind of awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like it's kind of, it should be obvious that that should happen. Yeah, but... You would, yeah. And I almost want to be like, why why three like what happened to that second person like you know <laughs> you, like, once they did it again mm-hmm. are we not gonna yeah but you know we take what we can get when it comes right. to people understanding cases, like not that it's ever okay but sort of like i think they try to stick with the whole like every case is different mm-hmm. like, a lot of states are hesitant to do things like that I still think they should be in place. I don't think people should be hesitant about it at all, but I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. The judge said that Bradley betrayed his patient's trust and disgraced the medical profession. There's no doubt about that. And he said, you'll never be a, in a position to harm a child again because he you know, made sure of that with the sentences that he, that he got. That's the exact same thing that that judge said to the Olympic doctor. It's like the, almost word for word at the same time. I know. What a horrible, and that's, you know, you and I were talking about this before when, when, when Becca sent me this story, that's what I thought the story was going to be. It was going to be that doctor that did the, you know, uh, he was the uh, doctor for the Olympic, uh, what gymnasts, I think. I think it was just a gymnast. Yeah. And that's a story that I've thought about doing. And so when I saw her her email, I was like, oh, this is, she, she's connected to this, uh, Kate, not, she's not personally connected to it, but she knows someone who, I want to say maybe her, uh, nursing instructor said, she said was connected to this. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. But the thing is, this is a completely different doctor, a totally different pediatrician who was doing this sort of thing. So that's two that in re- relatively recent years recent, yeah. that we know it was that dis- it was discovered and that there was evidence and that they were 100% guilty it kind of scares me to think of what could possibly be going on that we don't know about you know it's one of the lost <laughs> it, 
Yeah. And it makes it, it just, you know, you got to make sure people are aware that this sort of thing can happen. You have to protect your child. Speak up if you see something. If your gut is yeah. telling you as a mother or a father that something is not right, just advocate for your child, you know? That's a lot of what I see too is that they will continue to have issues if they felt like I've been abused in the past. They might continue to have issues for advocating for themselves, even when it's very clear that they're being like, you know, mistreated. Mm -hmm. So like I've had doctors disrespect my patients. I've had other nurses disrespect my patients, but they'll just call, like they'll call somebody on our team or they'll call me directly and be like, this happened. And I was like, oh man. Mm. And sometimes they're, they're blow my mind and they're, they'll, they'll say this happens and then they'll go right into what they did about it. And then sometimes they're like, I don't know what to do. What do I do? Yeah. So that's the thing. I think it takes practice to sort of be that person, you know, to stand up for yourself or stand up for someone else. Uh, Mm -hmm. But we just have to make ourselves do it. Yeah. He actually appealed the ruling and he claimed that the original search warrant was not specific enough about where the evidence would be located and that the police exceeded the limits of the warrant without probable cause. And I'm sure that that would have been significant because if they did not carry out that search warrant correctly and they took all those videotapes, which mm-hmm. was, had to have been the most damning evidence, you know, that this is, then this is sounding a lot like a TV show. Yeah, that could all be just thrown out, and who yeah. knows? Yeah, we would it be any good if it was mm-hmm. taken on incorrectly from a warrant or whatever? It, it's it's out, and that could it have been a completely it. different outcome if that had happened. But thank goodness, the Delaware Supreme Court ruled unanimously that his convictions were affirmed, and that the search warrants had been carried out correctly, and there were no issues with that. So that was on September 6th of 2012. And this, that just took like... Mm-hmm. Way too long. Yeah. Like two decades. Way too long. <laughs> the office complex that housed his former practice was demolished. Um, that happened in Nobody 2011. Mm-hmm. And the state police confiscated the contents of his storage locker and destroyed them. So there, there was just so, so much that he had, I guess, evidence that he had just collected, you know, over the years and they destroyed all of that. And then they were actually planning on, I guess, auctioning off some things, some things that were in the storage locker that would have been of value to satisfy unpaid rent. But Bo Biden intervened on behalf of the victims to buy them for a symbolic $1 so as not to take the chance of ever uh, of them ever being used again, like he didn't want. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't want to know what it was. Yeah, but... <laughs> or like resold. Like somebody buys this and mm-hmm. says, "Oh, it was stuffed or from this case," and you know, somebody starts profiting off of it. Yeah, he was kept in the special housing unit of a correctional center in Newcastle. There and then. In 2016, they transferred him to Connecticut because they said that 
so many of his victims were right there in that general area and they just wanted to get him completely out of the area. So they transferred him out of state. So they don't have to think about him anymore if they can help it. (laughs) Yeah, that was um, coming from Boston. That was the same cries that I heard after the marathon coming was that they didn't want him anywhere near the state. Well, I guess that's our bad doctor story. My goodness. I know it was, was really, really disturbing. Bad. Really, really disturbing. <laughs> well, it just shows like a, like, it kind of talks about like, the, I feel like we do see a lot of patients with trauma and we're just sort of like, oh, they had childhood trauma. This is what some, some of it is. This is some of what they're referring to. Yeah. I think sometimes once they're, I work with adults. So once it gets into adults, they don't really, they've talked about it typically or I'm not the person they talk about it with, at least. Um, but it's just sort of, they have childhood trauma. And nobody, nobody but the people who they tell directly really know the specifics of what that can mean. Yeah. You know, they assume, they might assume something, but they don't know for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So our good doctor story this week is, it's, it's COVID-related. It is a Chinese doctor from Wuhan, China, which of course is where the virus originated from. And apparently back in December, this doctor from China, he was an ophthalmologist, was he tried to blow the whistle about this. And what happened is police detained him a few days after he posted in a group chat about patients showing signs of a new SARS-like illness. I wonder what this group chat was. I know, but they they arrested mm-hmm. him. And of course, this is yeah. in China, so it's a little stricter. Very strict. They <laughs> monitor everything. They arrested yeah. him for spreading false rumors and forced him to sign a police document admitting that he had seriously disrupted social order and breached the law. And officers said eight people had been disciplined for spreading rumors um, in relation to the virus, but that it wasn't clear whether Lee was one of those eight. So a week later, the doctor developed a fever and published his um, account online. And then after being diagnosed with COVID-19 at the end of January, he died in early February of the virus. And his death sparked an outrage in China, especially of you know people on the internet who kind of knew what was going on and what had happened. Yeah, and it's just pretty much. Um, I think that this there's a system there where the government sent uh, sort of censors, you know, what yeah. is being put mm-hmm. on the internet, and they were those censors were overwhelmed by all of these posts blaming the government. So... Probably how it got... Yeah. I want to say out, but I mean, like, I remember hearing about this story back in February. So, like, mm-hmm. it got... Or a story at least similar to this. It got around. <laughs> well, the thing is, they did an investigation, and even though he was reprimanded for spreading rumors, they, after the investigation was done they uh, discover that he he was exonerated. Yeah. And Yay. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what good that does us, but 
he, at least it lets the world know. Um, It's not like people didn't know anyway, but it sort of sends a message maybe that like, you know, to hopefully to the Chinese government to be a little bit more careful about what they're requiring of people. Because even though they try to keep a lock on the information that gets out there and what they, what people say, I think that Chinese people are getting more and more brave about what, you know, about saying things and coming forward. And so. And I mean, had it not spread to like the entire world at this point, I don't, I wonder if they would have come out and apologized or I wonder if they just would have, you know, if it had stayed on the off chance that it had sort of just stayed in China or had spread that much that they might have just let it go, but where they can't deny it anymore. Yeah. Well, I I just think, once again, this was a brave, this is somebody who's willing to, in China of all places, stand up and, and speak out, you know, about what he believed in. It's hard to do. It's I, A lot of doctors in the US are doing it, not like in a bad way, but I've seen a lot of like doctors posting videos and doctors speaking out about like, this is what we're seeing. Mm-hmm. This is the reality. Like, please follow X, Y, or Z. So I think... Yeah, it's nice to see that at least like around here, we seem to be very vocal. Yeah, I I agree. Um, I think that more people are standing up and trying to help at, at the very least educate the public about. Yeah, that's we'll see what it is. You know, being responsible. Um, this this doctor's name is Lee Wenlang, and I I just um I wanted to share his story because he he was brave because it's one thing to be brave and go on the internet and say, you know, stand up for what you believe in and fight against um, false information or fight against what you believe is wrong and try to try to stand up in a way that maybe puts your job at risk or puts your life, puts you at risk, you know, for your reputation or whatever. Yeah. Your job. But it's another thing to live in a country where you are not, necessarily free to just say whatever you want to say and you could be arrested in which he was so uh i really blows my mind yeah i commend him for being brave and doing what he's doing and for all the people who are are being brave and doing those those things and standing up for what they believe in well it's not easy definitely not easy especially where he didn't know what it was like he mm -hmm. was just sort of like yeah, I don't know what this is, but I'm telling you, like, I got a bad feeling. He was just recognizing some things that he was seeing over and over again. And so he was bringing it out, bringing it, you know, bringing that, making a comment about it. And what, and the Chinese government was like, well, you didn't have any proof that so it's, un, you know, you shouldn't have been making statements like that because you didn't have any proof. But he was right. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah so good for him. Well, I guess that wraps it up for another episode. Renee, thank you so much for coming on for another episode. Um, I had so much fun. Really, I love talking. Yeah, <laughs> this is great. I appreciate it. Yeah. That was fun. And you guys can find Renee on a little piece of insane on Instagram. And me. that's Renee. And you can find me at Good Nurse Bad Nurse on Instagram or GNBN Podcast on Facebook, or you can go to Good Nurse badnurse.com and that's our website you can listen to our episodes there 
or you, there's some other stuff. We've got some more stuff coming on the website. We website's great. I was tro- I was trolling it the other day. Thank you. It's a work <laughs> in progress. It's you know I work full time. My husband works full time, and so it's it's about all we can do. It's about all I can do just to get the episodes recorded, you know, researched, recorded, and and out there on it in a timely manner. So some of the well, it looks like someone who's doing that as their full-time job so you're doing a good job well thank you i pre- i think i'm thankful for my husband for that because he's so good at it. <laughs> oh yeah you told me that <laughs> i was like how'd you do that you were like my husband yeah thank i'm so thankful for for him he does a lot well you guys have a good week and i just want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy be a good nurse <laughs>